years of our first worship service, whoever happens to be leading that service may do what song leaders do that sometimes causes a pastor to go into fear and trembling. They may ask if anybody has a testimony. Can you imagine what that would be like in heaven? Who has a testimony about the goodness of God? Amen. You want to have a comfortable seat if they ask that question because you're going to be there for a while. There are going to be some stories that are familiar to us. Perhaps the woman with the issue of blood will raise her hand and tell us of how Jesus instantly touched her and cleansed her disease. Maybe blind Bartimaeus will tell us how he rose and cast aside his beggar's garment, came to the Lord and was never the same again. It be interesting to hear Moses reflect on what it was like to stand before the waters of the Red Sea and extend his hand, the rod in his hand, and see the waters begin to bank up, so much so that a multitude could go through on dry ground. Amen. But amongst the familiar, there will also be millions of stories, probably billions in fact, from people that you and I have never heard of. Those who serve God throughout history, faithful, powerful men and women of God, who saw the miraculous, who endured persecution, experienced revival, who knew what it was to struggle, just like us. And we will rejoice with them and every single person that endured until the end. And we will be able to remember Paul's words as he got to the very end of his ministry. And he said, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And I'm glad he said not to me only, but to all of them that love his appearing. Amen. What the, the stories that will be there when we get to the other side. Storytelling is more than what happens with children before they go to sleep. The word story includes in its meaning both factual accounts as well as fictional or things that have been made up. And storytelling is a part of the fabric of many cultures around the world and it is often the way that cultures are preserved. One generation tells the stories to the next and the who and the what and the why of those people is passed along from one generation to another and to another. When you do a little bit of research, you find that storytelling takes various forms. Include, obviously, speech or talking, but also singing, dancing, poetry, and acting. Some stories are passed on through demonstration. And some cultures have a greater amount of written history than others do, but whatever the format that is used, if the stories stop, the culture and the history begins to fade. And even within our families, there are stories that are told from one generation to another. How many of you know stories about your grandparents or your great-grandparents? Or, and you may never have actually spent any time with them. I know stories about my grandfather's father, who I never met. But that's a part of my heritage. My children are at an age where as soon as I start to tell a story, they've already heard it before. Because that's what stories are. You repeat the stories. And many of you have heard me talk about how many years I was blessed to sit under Brother Glass's ministry. I know all of his stories. I could preach most of his stories because I heard them so many times. I know a lot of Brother Jacobson's stories as well from the years I sat under his ministry. But those stories are what connect us. It's what joins one generation 
to another or one group of people to another. And it's probably not surprising that the idea or the concept of storytelling is biblical. It's a God thing. It's a God idea. When you go back, way back to the beginning or the early part of the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 12, God is preparing to deliver His children from slavery in Egypt. And He is introducing something that they've never ever heard of before, which we now know looking back, we call the Passover, where God told them how to go about a particular sacrifice and where to apply the blood in their homes and what to eat and what not to eat and and how to be prepared and ready to go. And it was an incredible time in Israel's history. But in Exodus chapter 12 and in verse 24, the Lord said to Moses, you shall observe this thing for an ordinance or a statute or almost a regulation to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass that when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he has promised, that you shall keep this service. He said, you're not going to do this once and forget about it. He said, when it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service? You imagine as a young Israelite child gets old enough to start asking questions. Dad, why are you putting blood on the door? Why are we eating this unleavened bread? Why are we eating these bitter herbs? Why are you telling that story? In fact, from their infancy, they would have heard that story and they would not be able to remember a time when they didn't know that story. Because God said, you're going to do this every year so that when your children ask, why are we here? How did we get here? Why do we keep this ceremony? Why do we have this particular... Why do you tell that same story again, Dad? We have to hear it again? And the Lord said in verse 27 that ye shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And it says, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. That's a lot of the reason why we come to the house of God, to be told the same stories again and again and again and to bow our heads and to worship, and to be reminded of where He brought us from and His promises that He is taking us to. Amen. Because in that first Passover, they didn't know what the promised land was going to be like. They didn't really know where they were headed. They just knew that God had delivered them, and they had a promise to hang on to. And every year in the wilderness, they kept the Passover to remember where they came from and where they were going. And that's why we come to church. Amen. We come here so that somebody, whether it's me or somebody else, reminds us where he brought us from, where he's taking us to, and to be reassured and encouraged that the present is just in between those two points in our timeline. Amen. We see the same concept a little further on in the narrative of Israel in in Moses' instituting what we know as the law of Moses or the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, very well-known passage of Scripture, verse 4 starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, thy soul, and all thy might. And these words, you don't delete this email, these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. Not only in your heart, but then verse 7 says, And you shall teach them diligently, unto thy children that means consistently and not get slack 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, and when you get up in the morning. And you shall bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them on the posts of thy house and on thy gates. If you go to an Orthodox community, an Orthodox Jewish community, some of them have these little containers on the, the gates and the doors where they have these scriptures in them literally. And then verse 10 says, And it shall be that when the Lord shall have brought you into the land that he swore or he promised to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which you didn't build, houses full of good things which you didn't fill up, wells that are digged that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant, and when you've eaten and you're full, see, this is the, the risk of contentment, is that we can get spiritually fat and forget what it was like to be hungry. Forget what it was like to have a thirst in our souls that nothing in this world could satisfy. Amen. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs, to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. But the full soul loathes a honeycomb. In other words, doesn't even want the good stuff. Amen. He said, when that happens, he said, then beware, verse 12, that you don't forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Every day when you sit down, when you're walking to work or school, when you're walking with your family, when you go to bed at night, when you're having breakfast, you tell your kids again and again and again, there's one God, there's one God, there's one God. We have to love Him with everything that we have, every day, every day. You know, those kids, they heard that over and over it was drilled into them because they were told you've got to put it in them because what happens is when the goodness of god comes to pass human nature is really twisted and messed up we have a really great ability to forget how bad things were read read how the israelites complained i mean really who wants to be a slave so you can have some garlic and a cucumber i mean really Cucumbers, of all things. I mean, I don't mind cucumber, but it's not worth the brick pits. It's not worth slavery or bondage. But they forgot, and they said, oh, we had fish, onions, cucumbers. If they had to stop long enough to reach to their backs and feel the scar tissue where the lash had been from the slave master. You see, you see this concept of repeating things is all the way through the Word of God. Joshua chapter 4. Now we're coming to the edge of the promised land. Joshua 4 and 4, Moses has gone on. Joshua's in charge now. Then Joshua called the 12 men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe of men. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan River. Take you up every man a stone upon his shoulder. So it wasn't a little pebble. It was a big stone. It had to be carried on your shoulder according to the number of tribes of the children of Israel. So 12 big stones, one man, one stone. That this may be a sign unto you. Why? That when your children ask their fathers in the time to come, what in the world are these stones doing here? Why did we put these stones here? Then you shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off from before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off from these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Tell the children. Tell the ones who come behind us. And that's what's happening upstairs. We're telling the children. 
It's an, it's an, an elementary level, but we're telling the children. That's not crash. That's not babysitting. That's telling them why the stones are there. That's telling them why when we have communion, we have that Passover parallel in the New Testament church. We're reminding them, we're putting into them what God did for us. Amen. You can jump ahead to the New Testament in Acts, the second chapter, when the Holy Ghost was poured out for the first time and Peter was able to minister to the crowd that was there and to to explain to them and to get them to understand that the, the Jesus that they had crucified had risen from the dead and they realized they were pricked in their hearts and they said, what do we need to do? And verse 38, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But it goes on. He said, the promise is unto you. And to who? It's to your children. And all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall. That means this morning that the unborn children that we have amongst us, that promise is already there for them. That story waits for them to be born. That as they grow and they begin to understand and they, in such the innocence of childhood, they begin to worship and lift their hands in church and maybe just imitating mom and dad, maybe making fun of the pastor. We'll deal with that later. But as they respond to the move of the Holy Ghost, there's a promise that's waiting for them, that's active. It's not history. This is not just a story we tell. This is a promise that's current. It's in the right now. It's for our children. And if you've got little kids and you're worried about the condition that this world's in, that's a reasonable concern. But those little kids that you have, the promise is still for them. You know, that's what we read in Deuteronomy. Let me get off track a little bit. It doesn't say, tell your kids only when you come to church. It says in your home. In your home. Every day. It doesn't matter if you hear the greatest preaching you've ever heard. Once a week's not going to save your kids. The victory for your family is one in your home. It's your kids being told every day there's one God. Please don't just repeat the Shema to them every day. You'll drive them nuts. But teach them about the things of God. Let them know why we live the way we live. Let them know why we believe what we believe, that it's not just philosophy or tradition, but it comes from the inspired Word of God. Bring them to the house of God. Please bring your children to the house of God. But one day out of seven is not going to cut it. That's why you don't read that Moses said, right, on the Sabbath, bring your kids to the tabernacle. No, he said, every day in your house, when you get up, when you lie down, when you're sitting down, when you're walking, when you're brushing your teeth, whatever they did back then for personal hygiene, I don't know. But every day, we come here to worship together. Sometimes to get strength, sometimes to be renewed, to be restored, to be encouraged, to be challenged, whatever God wants. But this is not the God day of the week. This is the day we come together as His body. But if you're going to know the power of God in your children's lives, it happens Monday through Saturday. Amen. That's not in my notes. We're going to get to some of that in the beginning of the new year. We're going to be doing some, a series on family when we get back from general conference. But this promise is for your children. Jesus used stories when he taught. We call them parables. You'd often read in the Gospels, he would say, a certain man. Sometimes he told a story of somebody that actually existed. Other times he just gave an example of 
You see, a, a parable is a story that is told to illustrate a lesson or a concept or a principle. The original meaning of the word parable means to place beside. So you take something you're wanting people to understand and you put a story next to it and you hope that that story will bring understanding to the deeper principle, the deeper concept, the things that God is wanting to communicate. And in fact, even, don't misunderstand me this morning, even the fact that the Lord's given us the Word of God and that we have it in print, it's not actually designed to simply be printed and distributed. I, there are people that have been involved in smuggling Bibles into countries where it was illegal to have a Bible, and I have the greatest respect for that. My uncle was involved in that many years ago, and that's a, a wonderful thing. And if you could ever see what happens when somebody who's never held a Bible before but believes in God gets a Bible for the first time. It's another reason why I'm a little bit funny about us reading our Scriptures on our phones in the house of God. And you understand what men like William Tyndale went through to get this printed in our language and how people will weep just to hold a Bible in their hands. It just doesn't feel right to me to be going iPhone Bible. Trust me, I'm not anti-technology. I love technology. I've got a house full of it. But there's something about the feel of the printed Word of God in our hands. Amen. I would encourage you... I. I can't demand, I don't think I can do that, but I would encourage you, have a real Bible in your hands when you come to the house. Buy your children real Bibles. Don't download apps for them, please. I mean, if they want to do that, that's fine. But teach them to love the book. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but unto us which are saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent where is the wise where is the scribe where is the disputer of this world hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world for after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God couldn't do it in their own understanding the Scripture says it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. Not foolish preaching, but by using flawed humanity, vessels of clay. It pleased God to use the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so I love the fact we have the printed Word of God, but it was not meant to be handed out. It was meant to be preached. This story is meant to be told. Very few, I'm not saying it never happens, but very few people get saved because somebody bought somebody a Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. You want to buy Bibles for your friends? Go for it. But somebody needs to tell them. Somebody needs to tell them. That's why in Ephesians 4 it says, And he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. It doesn't say printers and photocopiers and scanners. He gave people the responsibility to tell the story. To tell the story. Hallelujah. Some of us in here this morning have grown up hearing the story of Jesus. I can't remember a time when I didn't go to church in my own life. But for others, it was later in our lives. 
And what makes the story of Jesus different from any other story is that it is designed or given to impact your story. Now we sit around and we share stories. You get together with family, birthdays and Christmas, and you all talk about you remember when this happened and we laugh and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, they're just, that's somebody else's story. Jesus' story is designed or given to us to impact your story so that when you hear his story, you are never the same again. It's not designed to be, hey, that was a really cool story. I never heard that before. It's designed to intersect with your story and your life so that your story can be changed. Amen. It's designed so that something will happen. And as we've heard this morning, nobody has a life story that cannot be impacted by the story of Jesus Christ. Amen. Your story may include heartache. It may include brokenness. It may include addictions and bondage. You may even have a story full of great success. And everybody thinks that your life is all great, but inside your soul there is a thirst for something that success in the world's eyes cannot provide. Because Jesus doesn't want to just change your story. He wants to give you a brand new story. In fact, I'll go a step further and say, He wants to make your story a part of His story. Amen. Because when you believe the things that Jesus says, you'll do the things that Jesus asks you to do. He will become a part of you, you will become a part of Him, and your stories will be woven together as one. So much so that when you start to tell your story, it actually becomes His story. And when you allow the Lord to do what He can do in lives like only He can, you can't tell your story without Him being involved. Every time when, you, when God has turned your life around, when God has washed away your sins by being baptized in Jesus' name, and you've experienced the power of repentance and being filled with the Holy Ghost and speaking with other tongues, it has such an impact when you begin to walk with God that when you get a chance to share your story, Jesus is going to be in the mix because you cannot separate your story from His story. Amen. That's why in Colossians 3 and 3, the Apostle Paul said, For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. That means I'm not even the main character anymore. When I open my mouth and I begin to tell my story, I should be saying, this is what Jesus did for me. This is how my story used to read, but then something happened and I met Jesus and my story changed. And I've never been the same again. I'll go as far as to say this, and I don't want to offend anybody, but if you can tell your story and leave Jesus out, you need a new publisher. You need to have a look at that story. Amen. More than ten times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul refers to the story of Jesus as the gospel of Christ. But on three other separate occasions, it became so much a part of Paul that he calls it my gospel. He didn't die for us. His blood wasn't shed for us, but his story was so closely woven together with the story of, with the gospel of Jesus Christ that he didn't think it was wrong to say, that's my gospel. And if you're born again this morning, you need to feel that same way. You need to feel a certain ownership that his story and my story, that's my gospel. I'm not the Savior. 
None of us are. But if he writes our story, amen. I hope this morning you cannot imagine your story without Jesus in it. Amen. I know that there are many, many times that I've messed up, stumbled, disobeyed the Lord, screwed everything up, but he was still in the story. He didn't leave. In fact, while I was messing it up, he was writing the next chapter about how he was going to clean me up, sort me out, put me back on the road again. That's why the writer of Hebrews said we look unto Jesus. In other words, we don't be distracted by other stuff because he is the author and the finisher of our faith, of our story, of our story. I want you to stand with me this morning. If I could have a musician, please. What's your story this morning? What's your story? Who is the author of your story? Are you still the one that's writing your own script? If you are, it's probably not going as well as you hope. But if we will allow him to begin to write our story. You know, there is nothing like having your life turned around by the power of Jesus. If you've never repented of your sins this morning, all that simply means is that we recognize that we've sinned and that there's a genuine regret for that sin. We want to turn our lives around. We want to say, Lord, I I recognize that I've made a great big mess in my life. I've broken just about every rule that the Lord's got in the Word of God, and I want to do a U-turn and turn my life around. When we do that, the Bible says we need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why in His name? He's the author. He doesn't use a pen name. He puts his name on every original. We're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then as we taught in our Bible class earlier this morning, we become a temple of the Holy Ghost. Or as we worship him and we surrender to him, we say, God, this preacher said that the promise is for me. And we believe that we receive that from him. And we let him write that story and fill us with his spirit. And your life will never be the same. So that's my first question this morning. Who is the author of your story? My second question is for those that have already begun to let the Lord write their story, and it's maybe a little bit more sobering in a certain sense. Will you tell your story? Who needs to hear your story? Somebody doesn't need you to hand them a Bible. Say, here, read this, all the answers are in there. They need your story. Because if your story is his story, they'll begin to hear what God has done and how good God is and how merciful God is and how I used to be this and I used to be that and I used to struggle with this problem and I was miserable and I was full of shame and guilt and addiction and brokenness. But somebody told me a story about a God that loves me before I ever knew Him and that if I would allow Him, He could take, as it were, that pen and begin to start afresh. He can wipe a page clean and begin to say, new page, new chapter, new story. Somebody needs to hear your story. Somebody told you theirs. And so as we open this altar this morning, I'm appealing for two groups of people. If you need an author this morning, he's here. 
If you need God, you want God to start to write a new story, I want you to come. We want to pray with you. But if you've been perhaps leaving Jesus out of your story, I want to challenge you to be willing to share your story with somebody. This world needs to hear your story as long as it's his story. Once you come as we worship him this morning, hallelujah. Can make a commitment and say, Lord, I want to tell somebody because it's not about me. It's about you. I want to tell somebody what you've done for me. I want to tell somebody how you set me free, Lord God, how you turned all my brokenness into wholeness, how you healed me, how you made me complete, Lord, how you turned my life around. God, give me somebody that'll listen to my story. Hallelujah. And he's not in your story this morning. He wants to be. If Jesus is not a part of your story, that can all start today. You can sign up with him and say, Lord, I want you to write my life. I want you to orchestrate my path. I want you to guide me and lead me and direct me. Turn my life around. Use me to glorify you. Take my brokenness and make me whole. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We worship you, Lord God. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, for your goodness this morning. We thank you, Lord, for every life you've turned around and every story you're about to write, Lord Jesus, we pray. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus.